Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 131. And in this episode, we will discuss the pros and cons of shares versus property and have a look at it from a historical perspective. To save you some time, here's the answer. It depends on your investing style. There, I said it. I personally prefer the stock market, but I get it when others focus more on property. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via my Facebook page. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. I call it the three E's. The first one is to be educated about finances because improving your financial literacy is really important. And with that, the second E is to be empowered. When you go to your accountant, lawyer or financial planner or advisor, to improve your financial literacy and have that knowledge empowers you to ask the right questions so that both of you know what you're talking about and understand each other properly. And the third E is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed advisor. In other words, don't listen to some random guy ranting on the internet about money. But if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, I think there are five easy steps that anybody can implement today. Step one is you've got to pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax money and put it aside. Now, if you want to do more than 20%, that's completely fine. But I think minimum should be 20%. Step two is you've got to invest that money ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I just invest in index funds because I understand the stock market and I understand index funds. Step three is wherever possible, make sure you reinvest dividends. Reinvesting dividends means the power of compounding is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. Now, traditional financial media say long-term is 5, 10 or 15 years. I think long-term is at least 20, 30, if not 40 years. Of course, the longer you do it, the better it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. And step five is you've got to automate every step as much as you possibly can. And automate it forever. Automation means you're more likely to follow the plan and less likely to forget to do things and disrupt your investment future. If you do these five simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring you happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before I go on to the main topic of shares versus property, I had a question from Branko who asks, what happens if you sell your stock portfolio or ETFs or index funds partially? How does CGT work in such a case? Now, CGT is capital gains tax. 
Branko, thanks for the question, and it's a really good question. Now, to answer this, we need to tackle some concepts. The first one is cost base. What is the cost of you to buy the asset? And what are the costs to hold and dispose of it? So that's cost base. Then you've got to work out whether you're selling before the 12 months of ownership. Because in Australia, if you own things for greater than 12 months, you tend to get a 50% CGT discount. If you buy and sell things within the 12-month period, you don't get that discount. So the time horizon of how long you hold the investment matters. Then you've got to think about, are you going to sell the whole thing, called a full sale, or are you going to do a partial sale? Now, for the purposes of this question, let's consider an example. Amy buys 1,000 units in an ETF called ABCD. Each unit costs $10. So her total cost to buy 1,000 units is $10,000. Supposing she holds it for five years and each unit is now priced at $20 after the five years. Her ETF is now worth $20,000. Therefore, her capital gains is around $10,000, roughly. Now, I've done a detailed episode on the concept of capital gains and losses in episode 64. If you want the full story and the geeky concepts, go back and listen to that. But in this episode, I'm going to tackle some basic things about CGT so that the average person can understand it easier. Now, given she's held the investment for greater than 12 months, she'll be eligible for the CGT discount of 50%. Now, that doesn't mean she gets $5,000 off her tax bill because 50% of $10,000 is $5,000. She's not going to get $5,000 off her tax bill, which is what a lot of people think CGT discount of 50% is. It means that she will get 50% of $10,000 removed first, so her new capital gain for tax purposes is only $5,000. Then this $5,000 gets added to her assessable income and she will need to pay marginal tax rates on that $5,000 once it's added to the assessable income. Now, that's pretty simple. Suppose we change the scenario. Suppose now Amy wants to buy the ETF ABCD. Each unit costs $10 in Jan 2021. She decides to buy 100 units per month over 10 months. During the 10 months, the cost of the unit fluctuates from $8 to $12 per unit, depending on the month. Now, this means that Amy needs to keep track of, one, how many units she bought on which month for what cost per unit, and two, this allows her to track what her monthly cost is to buy the ETF. Suppose after five years, the unit price now is $20 per unit. This means that if she chooses to sell the entire portfolio, you can imagine her average cost base will be different. It won't be just $10 per unit when she first started buying, It'll be based on the average of her purchases over the first 10 months of a holding period. She will still get the 50% capital gains discount from a taxation point of view because she has held the asset for greater than 12 months. In this case, she's held it for five years. Now, this means that Amy needs to keep accurate records for the entire period to ensure she doesn't end up paying too much CGT or too little CGT. Now, because CGT is not paid like pay-as-you-go tax, she needs to set aside the tax money ready to be paid during tax time if she crystallises her gains. 
Now, what happens then if Amy only sold a portion of her portfolio? Let's use another example. Amy wants to buy ETF ABCD and each unit is worth $10. She buys 1,000 units in January 2015. The total cost is $10,000. In January 2018, she buys another 1,000 units for a cost of $8 per unit at a total cost of $8,000. She has a total of 2,000 units of ETF ABCD. Now, just before the COVID crash in January 2020, she decides to sell 1,500 units when the ETF hits a high of $15 per unit. Notice she doesn't liquidate her portfolio, the entire portfolio that is. She only wants to sell 1,500 out of the 2,000 units. Therefore, how will the CGT be worked out? Now, Amy has two main choices. Number one is called the first in, first out method. She nominates 1,000 units from the first parcel she bought in 2015 and 500 units from the second parcel she purchased in uh, 2018. Or the second way is the average cost method. Amy can calculate her average cost base over the two purchases and then apply the capital gains based on the final sale price. This is a bit more complicated And I think the ATO have specific guidelines on this. You need to go and check it out. You can imagine this is a very complex process. And Amy must keep detailed records about when she bought what ETF units, especially if she has multiple ETFs. Now, Branko, I hope this answers your question more broadly. Having said this, I've never sold any of my index fund portfolio. So I haven't actually had to work this out. Hopefully, I'll never have to sell it because I plan to live off my dividends. Um, so I never really plan to get rid of any of my index funds. Now to the main topic, shares versus property, which is better over the long term. Now, I'm a big share person, um, and I guess if you ask me why are shares so popular, I think there are a number of factors. Number one, you know, uh, I'm a massive, massive stock market fan. I just think it's less hassle for the work involved, and it's so much easier to manage. And over the very long term, shares often have outperformed the property market. Now, I'm talking over 100 years or so. And the stock market, I think, provides very good opportunities for good capital growth, but also provides an opportunity for a good income stream. So it's suitable for all ages and most investors. Now, franking dividends, that's something that you know, it's it's a golden egg of the Australian taxation system. And basically, with frank dividends, it avoids double taxation. This is very unique to Australia. Only a few countries in the world have this system. In other countries, if you get paid dividends, you get taxed twice, one at the company level and one at the personal tax level. Now, the other thing about share market is the liquidity and accessibility to the share market is far greater than the property market. You can start investing in shares or index funds or ETFs with as little as 500 bucks, sometimes even less. The cost of investing in the share market or the stock market is also extremely low when compared to property. Brokerage is quite cheap nowadays and management fees are always cheaper and cheaper. It's almost as if it's a race to the bottom. And more and more new companies are coming up with good brokerage firms, and low-cost index fund providers are also entering the market. 
And the other big thing about the share market or the index fund portfolio is you can offload part of your portfolio. This is critical, especially if you want to crystallise your losses or gains based on your taxation status. This is obviously not possible with property. For example, you can't sell your garage of your home and keep the rest. Now, let's have a look at the imputation system or the franking dividend system, because I think it's often an unexplored aspect of the stock market investing. And I discussed this concept in great detail way back in episode 20, if you're interested in the geeky concepts. The reality is 85% of companies listed on the ASX 200 provide frank dividends. This means the dividends are given to the shareholders after the company had paid its fair share of tax on the profits. And this means that if you have a marginal tax rate of 30% and the company has a tax rate of 30%, then you don't have to pay any more tax on your dividends as you will get a credit of the taxes already paid by the company. Again, this is very unique to Australia. Only a few countries have this system. This also means that if your imputation credits adds up to more money than what tax you actually owe, then you get a tax refund. This is how a lot of retirees benefit from the dividend system. This was introduced by the Howard government because prior to that, if your refund was more than what tax you actually owe, you don't get a refund, but you wouldn't pay any taxation either. So it's completely incorrect to compare dividend yield to traditional interest rates. This is because interest rate payments are completely assessable, whereas dividend payments have to be grossed up due to the imputation credits. So don't get confused between dividend payments and interest payments, although both of them are termed income investing. But what about if you own shares or SMSFs, okay, in superannuation, which provide a frank dividend? How does that work? Well, it's very likely you may end up with a surplus franking credit within the super system. Remember, superannuation is only taxed at 15% and companies are taxed at 30%. So immediately, you're rewarded with 15% imputation credits, which can be used to offset any income from other aspects of the super fund. Now, suppose your super fund is now in pension phase or retirement phase, which means it's 0% tax rate. This means the entire company tax can be refunded as imputation credits back to the super fund. This tops up the super fund. And of course, clearly over time, this adds significant value to the super. These are all little things that you may not have realized on why maximizing super is a phenomenal way to build retirement. But the stock market is not 100% perfect, okay? So what's bad about it? Well, the number one thing that's bad about it is people check the stock market every day, so it's very volatile. People generally don't like volatility of the stock market. Now, for me, I love volatility because I see it as an opportunity to keep investing so my cost of buying is reduced as a dollar cost average over time. Now, since the 80s, when you think about it, we've had so many market crashes in Australia. Number one was the Black Monday 1987 crash. Number two was the 1994 market decline with record high interest rates, 17 and 18% back then. That was what the interest rates was. Number three was the 97 Asian financial crisis. Number four was the 99-2000 dot-com bubble. 
Number five was the GFC, 2008. And number six more recently is the COVID-19 crash of March 2020. Now, all of these crashes have sent nervous investors into hiding. This is where people equate volatility versus risk. In my view, they are very different concepts. If you follow the rules and go on a roller coaster ride, it's bumpy, it's exciting, it's nerve-wracking, but very few people get hurt in a roller coaster ride unless they try and jump off in the middle of the ride. The ride being the length of time investing and the tracks and roller coaster itself being the highs and lows of the stock market. We would never jump out halfway through the ride. But people try and do that with the stock market all the time and sometimes get hurt along the way. This then creates an opinion, an image, that the stock market is risky. But in fact, during any 30-year period, you pick any 30-year period, most of the time, there is a 99% chance you will make money during that 30-year period. 99% chance you'll make money. Let me repeat that. There's a 99% chance in any 30-year period that you're going to make money in the stock market. In other words, which asset class has a 99% chance of making money over the long term? So my humble view, risk does not equate to volatility. So that's my little rant on the stock market, okay? I love it. It's great. I'm trying to transition most of my assets into the stock market. Um, I'm not a great fan of investing property, but I do have investment property. So, which leads to the next topic of why is direct property so popular? Well, the value of the property usually increases over time. And look at what's happened around the property market in Australia at the moment. The property can often be rented out, so it has some dividend income or rental income. And the property also offers some income tax deductions. Now, if you want to learn all about deductions for property, I've done it in detail on episode 107 for all the details. Okay, so go back and listen to it if you're interested. Property is tangible. You can touch, you can feel it, you can see it. A tangible asset is something, you know, you can feel and touch and enjoy. When I log into my Vanguard portfolio, even though it's worth probably more than my properties, it doesn't invoke the same emotions as when I drive past one of my investment properties or even look at my own home from outside. And property is just an Aussie pastime. The Australian dream, we must own property. It's in our blood. It's our birthright. And sometimes the rents cover the cost of the loans and that's called neutral gearing. So that's fantastic. And also property allows for leverage. Most people borrow money to invest in property. With leverage, there are risks but with it comes significant rewards. Now, there's not much volatility in property on the short-term basis. You don't check your home value every single day, every single minute of the day, like you do at the stock market. You know, people don't turn on the news every day and say, the Australian property market is down by 30 points today, but they do say it for the ASX and the Dow Jones and NASDAQ and S&P 500 and all the other major indices. They say it every single day, but we never say it for our property. You don't get real estate agents coming to your house every single day, every minute, trying to value your property. So volatility in property is almost none in the short term. And the other thing about property that a lot of people don't understand or don't consider is that you can actually add value to the property. 
You can renovate the bathroom or renovate the kitchen to improve the value of the property. I can't do that with my stock portfolio index funds. So think about it this way. If you told your margin loan provider that you will put up 10% of money and borrow 90% of the money to invest in shares, they'll laugh. They won't give it to you. They'll think you're mad and they want to bargain you down to 50%. But with property, we do this all the time. Banks allow this. They only want 10% of deposit and they'll lend you the rest because even they think property is a surefire bet of recuperating their costs. And because property is not volatile, that's one of the main reasons they're able to do it. Whereas in the stock market, it's so volatile, you could lose all of your money. So banks are not going to lend you that much money to actually invest in shares. But property has also got its downsides. It's got some bad things about it. The cost of purchasing property is far more than purchasing shares or mutual funds or ETFs. The cost of entry includes stamp duty, real estate costs, inspection, fees. My Vanguard portfolio has never asked me to front up on maintenance costs like plumbing or real estate or stamp duty or land tax. The second thing is interest rate risk. When you borrow money to invest in property, there is inherent interest rate risks. If the interest rates rise, you may end up with mortgage stress. And that's why I tend to stick to the 30% of after-tax income rule should be the maximum commitment for any housing expenses. Rental vacancies. Now, COVID has taught a lot of property owners this when there was eviction moratoriums up until June this year. For residential and commercial property, the rental yield is not guaranteed. My Vanguard portfolio never asked me to give a rental reduction during COVID. The dividends kept rolling down. Granted, I had some dividend cuts, but I still made money. Now, the bad tenant risk, you know, bad tenants can often damage your property. You can't physically damage your index fund portfolio or your stock market portfolio. Property is illiquid, largely speaking. You can't sell part of the house. To sell a home, it takes usually three months. You need a campaign, you need a real estate agent, you need a broker. And now is a great example in Victoria where to actually inspect property, you've got to make an appointment. Up until recently, inspections were banned, so people were buying property sight unseen. So there's a lot of restrictions on property. And when you think about it, diversification is one of the few free lunches in investing. And buying a home is not diversification. You buy one home on one street in one suburb in one city in one state in one country. It's the opposite of diversification. But yet we all do it. And the other risk is risk of capital loss. If there's ever a downturn in the property market like in 2018, your sale value may not cover the money owed on the mortgage. Now, that's also existing, you know, to be fair in the stock market and index fund portfolio. So that's not unique to property. So those are the pros and cons of property and shares. Now, let's look at the numbers. Which investment asset class has performed better historically compared to property and shares. Let's compare them both. Now, for this, I looked at two main studies, which looked at the fine detail in the numbers. The first one was called the rate of return on everything. And it looked at the returns from 1901 to 2015 for the Australian market. The more recent study was a 2018 Russell Investment Study versus the ASX Long-Term Investing Report. I couldn't find anything more recent 
past 2018, particularly incorporating the 2020-2021 market, and I suspect it's coming in the future. So let's look at the first study, which was the Rate of Everything study uh, from 1901 to 2015. Equities, 7.81%. Housing, 6.37%. Now, they actually split this up into two eras, uh, the post-1950 era and the post-1980 era. And uh, the post-1950 era, equities was 7.57%, whereas property was 8.29%, so property did well. But after 1980, equities was 8.78% and housing was 7.16%. And it's interesting that this study looked at 16 economies from around the world, including the UK, USA, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Sweden. It actually excluded Canada. I'm not sure why it did. And it took the average of all those countries. And the average was equities did 7.04% and housing was 6.69% annualized returns. And what was interesting in most countries between 1950 and 1980 housing did better. But since 1980, almost universally, equities did better. Now, this could be due to new investing products in the equities markets, low cost, easy entrance requirements, more widespread mainstream knowledge of investing. There's a number of going, you know, good things going for the investing sector, particularly in the equities markets. So again, it depends on the number of years you look at and the era that you looked at. But just to recap, in the Australian market over the long term, From 1901 to 2015, equities was 7.81%, housing was 6.37%. And if you split the eras post-1950, equities lost out 7.57% to housing 8.29%. And if you split the era to post-1980, equities won 8.78% and housing was 7.16%. Now, what about the second study, which was the ASX Long-Term Investing Report? And in this one, they looked at the time period, which was 20 years, between 1997 and 2017. And it showed the Australian property market performed slightly better at 10.2% compared to equities at only 8.8% per annum. Now, if you took taxation into account, remember we talked about franking dividends and all that sort of stuff, the after-tax returns was much narrower. Equities was 8.8% and property was 8.9%. That's for the lowest marginal tax holders. And for the highest marginal tax rate people, equities was 6.7%, property was 7.6%. Now, this makes sense as property has a lot more deductions when compared to share portfolios and there was a lot more leverage involved. Now, suppose you took into account gearing, let's say 50% for both property uh, and uh, the share market, For the lowest marginal tax rates, equities did really well at 9.7%. Property was 10.4%, so did a little bit better. And the highest tax brackets, equities was 8% and property was around 9%. Now still, property wins out between 1997 and 2017, taking into account taxes and gearing as well. Now notice how two different studies conducted over two different timeframes yielded two different results. Therein lies the comparison fallacy. You can make arguments for or against 
property or shares based on the time frame you select for your investment asset class. So it's very difficult to compare these two asset classes one-on-one directly head-to-head because there's so many different parameters. What do I do? What do I prefer? I prefer stocks, hands down, because returns is not everything. It's the amount of effort that you have to put in to try and manage those investment asset classes. For me, the stock portfolio that I have or index fund portfolio, it's so much easier. It's less hassle. It's less costly. It's more liquid. It's easily sellable. And the way I look at it, when I'm retired, the last thing I want to do is to be responsible for property maintenance or repairs of property. Having a stock portfolio is far more easier when I retire. I also love the frank dividends and imputation credit system, which I hope will stand the test of time. But to be honest, I don't think I'll be that lucky because I've got another 30 years to go before I retire. So each to their own. For me, stock market, index fund investing is easy, simple, attractive, cheap. So I do it. Doesn't mean I don't have any property. I do, but I don't think I'll be buying any more investment properties in the long term. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm not sure. But it's not as attractive. Um, Certainly from a deductions point of view, it's very attractive. From a taxation point of view, it's very attractive. But in terms of the whole maintenance aspect of it, it's nothing turns me off more. That's about it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you choose to use. And in that light, here is a review I found on Apple Podcasts from Jazz Preston, who writes, personal finance education at its best. Thanks, Dev, for all you do. I get so much value from your show. Highly recommended for anyone who doesn't want to end up being a wage slave in a job they don't love. We all have the opportunity to build wealth and financial independence. We can also have a great life along the way too. Keep up the great content. Thank you very much, Jazz Preston. And thank you very much for your feedback. Keep them coming. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. I think we're up to 250 ratings of five-star ratings on Apple Podcast. Really keen to get that up to 300. So if you're listening to this and haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts or CastBox or whatever application you might be using, please go there and give us a five-star review. That makes a big, big difference. Remember to like the DevRaka Facebook page, shout out to questions and comments or topic suggestions. Share this on uh, Facebook and Instagram to family and friends. It's a free podcast. And remember, always pay yourself first because you're the most important person in your life. Take 20% of after-tax income and set it aside. And when it comes to shares and property, reality is we have our biases. I prefer stocks. Others prefer property. As long as you know what you're getting into, that's the most important thing. This is Devraka Personal Finance, episode 131. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.